Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is uh, Declan Murphy, urologist, here with my co-host, Renu Epen. Hi, Hello, you? Declan. How are you? I'm, I'm super excited about this podcast. It's, it's a good one. We don't often flag ahead of time on Twitter what we're going to talk about this week, but we did this we week. We did, we, we did. did this week when we saw all this media at the weekend about um, female surgeons being having better outcomes for their patients than male surgeons. Yeah. We thought, right, and especially when we recognised the, the lead author on the I know, uh, the we've paper. been wanting to have uh, Chris on the show for a while, uh, and he's given us a great reason for it. Yeah, so that's so. coming up. Uh, Chris Wallace from the University of Toronto um, and colleagues published one of two really interesting papers in JAMA surgery uh, this past week, which got a lot of media headlines around the world, showing that not for the first time, um, uh, 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 data that patients undergoing surgery by female surgeons have better outcomes than done by male surgeons. So very contented And topic. specifically looking at sort of more intermediate and later outcomes. So 90 yeah. day and one year outcomes. Yeah, and death outcomes even. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so I can't imagine that there's any bigger news on X or Twitter, but we do have an X League segment. We do, because uh, Aoife McVeigh is joining us again in studio. Aoife, who potters back every so often yeah. to tell us about what else is going on on Twitter this week. So Aoife, yeah, welcome back. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks, guys. I was going to say, you make my job a little bit difficult because you take every topical, uh, the biggest topic on Twitter and then end up getting the one of the authors of the paper on the podcast and then... Do you could, but anyway, that's and then you okay. have to look harder for the yeah, other stuff. Yeah, have to look harder. That's okay. It's good. It brings brings good content. Um, but yeah, there's been a a bit on on X this week. I actually was gonna come. I know last week I said that I found it okay, but I'm gonna take that back because my feed this week was full of lots of nonsense that I wasn't interested in. So it's I'm back in the not liking X as much. But anyway, I still are you also find back stuff. in urology training? <laughs> no. She's not, she's not, not <laughs> she hasn't returned to that extent. <laughs> Me, you're a radiologist, you're a radiologist. Um, but yeah, so the things I've seen this week was the EUREP uh, conference. So that's a European Urology uh, Residence Educational Program. Yeah. Um, and that looked really fun. I thought I seen loads of really good stuff. So first of all, the educational stuff looked really good. So they had loads of like... Um, little like uh, courses and um, sessions. Uh, I think even some Australian trainees are out there, which is great that everyone can go. But in particular, this video that surfaced off some of the Spanish residents, a lot of them female, it looks like, uh, having a bit of a party and a bit of a dance, which is always good to see the conference. <laughs> this is at the Europe conference in, or in Europe somewhere. Yeah. They're... they're uh... <laughs> They're obviously celebrating Chris's article. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Female says it's better, yay. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Oh, of course, that's Very good, that's all right. Full of joy after uh, a day of urology uh, training. Great. Makes me want to go. Who posted that? Uh, yeah, I think that's a resident in movies um, in Belgium. I want to very say. good, uh, yeah. Euros. Keep, yeah. keep posting from that conference. Looks like you're all enjoying yourself uh, very yeah. much. Yeah, so that's sort of the the good fun stuff. Good um, as usual, Twitter there was a few bad things that were going around. So um, something I hadn't mentioned that was I picked up a few weeks ago. Can't believe I didn't mention it because it's my two worlds colliding, which is pop culture and the Kardashians and medicine. <laughs> But uh, Kim Kardashian was found to be promoting a, a, a whole body MRI scan, just a screening one with uh, Pronovo. Uh, interestingly, she mentioned that it was actually a, a, an MRI that didn't have any radiation, but no MRIs have radiation. As opposed to all the other MRIs, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, just like, you know, 
sort of completely unattainable for most of the public um, and it sort of shows why these two worlds should really collide to be honest so um, yeah that was uh, seeing that come up thought I'd give it a mention um, and then I suppose a sort of bad one but you can have a sort of good outlook on it in that um, uh, there is a orthopaedic fellow I think that's over in um, Australia usually from the UK came to Australia on fellowship uh, that was sort of pointing out some things that he's found good about uh, working in Australia and then someone decided to sort of make a crass joke about orthopaedic surgeons um, about it which I don't think was meant in a sort of ha-ha way it was going to be a, a little bit of a jibe um, but that was actually called out by uh, some of the physicians on on Twitter to be like, not nah, not funny. Let's be all nice to each other. So Lisa, let's read it out because yeah. most of our audience are only on audio. So the original uh, yeah. tweet was from Simon Fleming, who's a he's got a big uh, yeah, he's got orthopedic lots, yeah. uh, fellow with uh, fifty odd thousand followers. And yeah. he's commenting here that today's NHS must change, blah blah. He's moved to um, Australia and he now gets paid fortnightly. So he's you know mm. just celebrating that. But then uh, this comment from. Uh, Thomas Woodcock. Yeah. And who's Thomas Woodcock? So it looks like, um, I'm not quite sure if he is a physician, but definitely works in like the medicine field, maybe in like medical ethics, even in law and, and things like that. Um, but I couldn't quite figure that out. But either way, seemed he, to be involved enough to know this pretty common joke. So about Tom Woodcock replies to that saying, what is the difference between an orthopedic surgeon and a rhino? One is small brained, horny and charges a lot. The other is an endangered species of the plains of Africa. If you put your pay first, go to work in a privatized health service like Australia. Go now. Oh, gee, that seems yeah, a bit mean. Bit mean. And then, um, yeah, Ria Liang uh, yeah, replies. So Ria is yeah. a very well-known voice, um, a fantastic female surgeon here in Australia. So what did what did Ria say? Yeah, so it looks like she said surgery has benefited from hashtag the operate with respect, hashtag let's remove it, and hashtag hammered out. Increasingly, we see disrespectful surgical culture perpetrated by non-surgeons. And this is why I'm pleased to be part of the Commonwealth-funded At A Better Culture project. We must do it together. Very yeah. good, Ria. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem with Twitter, isn't it? You know, it gets very trolly and bitter. So yeah. none of us like that. But, um, you know, it still has a value as a platform, I suppose, yeah. in drawing attention to topics. But, yes, let's be respectful on Twitter mm. and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, a bit nicer. Um, but, yeah, and then just to end it lightly, um, at David Keynes, I feel like I'm always referencing his Twitter. Um, but uh, he posted a really funny video, uh, video of It's actually um, a sort of plastic ball. It's obviously got beads in it. And it's one of those ones that you squeeze and one end pops out. And I feel like he's, as he's described, it's the perfect way to describe I suppose the pathogenesis of a bladder diverticulum in particular to patients. So it might be a good idea in urology clinics to, you know, invest in about 10 of these. They probably cost about a couple of dollars each and, you know, you can explain it to your patients pretty quickly. So, yeah. Yeah, David, David, yeah. David uh, Keynes, he's a, he's a really good value person to follow at, at Keynes, David, and he's got a very good YouTube channel as well, but he's always been a, a very good and effective uh, communicator in urology. Um, and we've nearly had him on the podcast once, but the, uh, the timings didn't work out, but I'd love to have him on again. He's a good friend from the olden days. That's right. A three-second video says a thousand words. Yeah, it's exactly fantastic. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, Aoife. That's yeah, good. Yeah, very good. good. I'm really excited to hear, yeah, the discussion today. Should Great. be a good one. Right, shall we go and welcome uh, Chris Wallace? So, we should. Uh, uh, Chris is a urologist at the University of uh, Toronto. Um, and as we uh, give you a heads up, he's, uh, well, he's actually very well published in this area, but he published a very nice paper at the weekend and the, the media jumped on it. And the headlines were, what do we see here? Patients see better outcomes with female surgeons, uh, studies find, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we'll dive right in and, and welcome Chris to GUCast. Chris, great to see you. Great to see you, Chris. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to catch up with you guys. And congratulations on this paper. Not your first work in this field, but um, this is this is definitely very compelling uh, evidence. Oh, I'm glad it uh, has resonated. I think, you know, this is the work we've been doing for a while, but uh, it keeps building and we always try and, you know, layer a paper uh, on top of what we've already uh, established before. And so I think this has given us a nice incremental step forward in, in the whole discussion. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it's been received very well, hasn't it? Well, I think so. Um, uh, but as usual with these things, indeed, on Twitter and so on, you'll have people calling out obvious flaws they might see in it, having not actually read the paper. But maybe we should do that first and ask Chris to say, well, look, can you t tell us what was this study about? Uh, what did you find and what are the limitations? Absolutely. So uh, there's no perfect study. Um, and so we'll be happy to dive into, you know, what the limitations are. But to give a little bit of background, this is work that we've been doing for about five years. We started building a multi-surgical cohort to try and understand the effect of sociodemographics on surgical outcomes. Uh, and as you guys probably know, there's been a lot of research done in on the patient side of things. So looking at, you know, patient age, patient rurality, um, issues related to uh, gender, sex, race. Um, but there hadn't been as much interest in um, the physician side of things and the surgeon side of things. And so I was building this cohort back in, I guess, the winter of 2016. And a really uh, sort of impactful study for me came out from Yusuke Tsugawa, who is um, at the time was a postdoc in Harvard and is now a collaborator of mine based out of UCLA. And he showed that when patients who are admitted to internal medicine teams with common diagnoses like COPD or CHF or, you know, those kind of things, if they had an admitting physician who was a woman, they had better outcomes. And so, you know, that got the wheels turning. And we put out our first paper in 2017, which showed that short-term outcomes, and that's things like readmission, reoperation, major medical complications, or even death within the first 30 days, were lower when patients had a female surgeon. Uh, I was a resident at that time and uh, went through a few uh, moves and transitions for fellowship. And the, the work went a little bit on... Uh, a pause, but we've picked it up over the last couple of years. And so this is probably the third of, I would say, a series of about six papers uh, on this topic um, that we've put out since I've been back on faculty in Toronto. And this one broadens the spectrum. We take it from the 30-day horizons, which are very classic in surgical literature and perioperative literature, to look a little bit more broadly. And so we've looked at three months or 90 days, and then one year after surgery. And I think Increasingly, we recognize that, uh, you know, the effects of surgery can linger longer than a month. And certainly, uh, for those of us who do the big lacs, um, you know, I counsel my cystectomy patients that they're not going to feel normal for a couple of months after surgery. Even if they haven't had any complications, you know, life's going to take more out of them. They're going to fatigue more easily. Their appetite will still be off. Things might taste funny. You know, they're just not back to normal. And so really broadening that um, the spectrum of what we consider to be surgically related events, I think, is is the the goal of this paper. And interesting, what we show is outcomes that are very comparable to the 30-day outcomes. So whether we looked at 90 days or at one year, our composite primary endpoint, which was death, readmission, reoperation, i.e., return to the OR for the same or a related uh, procedure, uh, or major medical complications. And this is an administrative definition, but these are things like 
unexpected admission to the ICU, need for intubation, dialysis, VTE, uh, MI, stroke, like major, you know, it doesn't quite fall into the Clevian Dindo because of the way that they're reported, but we're talking really here like grade three or higher events. Um, and if you had a female surgeon, patients were about six percent less likely to have one of these events. Um, and interestingly, that was mostly driven by a mortality difference. So in terms of a relative effect, patients with a female surgeon were 25% less likely to die at both three months and one year uh, after surgery. Wow. Now, one of, the things, one of the things people want to know is what are these surgeries? So we can dive into that if you'd like. Yeah, let's do that. Um, that a, I think that's a really interesting aspect of it. Because that comes out straight away, doesn't it? People yeah. are saying, oh, well, hold on a second now. What sort of surgery yes, was happening? Exactly. And, and also, were the girls only operating on the easy cases, Chris? Yeah. You know, and so yeah, I know you'll deal with it, but you could see it immediately. Absolutely. People hadn't even, they'd only read the headline and straight away it's, yeah, you know, the girl surgeons in my hospital only operate on the easy cases. And, and you guys but, tried uh, to adjust for this confounder, but it, it's and, challenging, and, isn't it, in, yeah, yeah. In, in this sort of analysis? Yeah, so there's never a perfect analysis, and so there's always the risk of residual confounding. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about that, uh, but first, just for the context of what this cohort represents. So back when we started in 2017, I built a team of um, uh, anesthesiologists, surgeons from about five different subspecialties, and a couple of general internists, and we sat down and we wanted to pick a, quote, representative cohort of surgeries. Now, you can't put everything in there because the numbers just get unwieldy. So we picked 25 procedures, and we picked at least a minimum of two per surgical subspecialty. Now, anybody who does these kind of analyses will know that your power comes not from just the number of patients you put into the study, but the number of events you had. So we intentionally didn't pick only minor things. If you did lumps and bumps and appies and coles and hydroseals, you're, you're not going to come out with any events, and so you're not going to be able to show anything meaningful of any kind. Yeah. So we have intentionally enriched for procedures that are somewhat higher risk. Now, what does that mean? I mean, we're not talking crazy risk here. We're talking like 90-day mortality rates of 1.5% for patients treated by women, about 2.5% for patients treated by men. So these are not crazy high um, risk um, of procedures. We're not talking, you know, liver transplants, but we're talking things like, you know, a cabbage and a single isolated valve replacement, aortic bifem, uh, we're talking about a triple A repair, we're talking about cystectomies, prostatectomies, bowel resections, um, hepatic lobectomies, uh, lung resections, wedge resections, um, yeah, or lobectomies. We're, Not we're just talking a list. Yeah. No, so we're talking like we're talking, but we're talking like the bread and butter, yeah. and 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 that pans out because when we look at where these surgeries are done, these are not just done at our tertiary and quaternary care level teaching hospitals. When we look in Ontario in the context of this study, these are surgeries that are done in hundreds of hospitals. So this is a generalizable cohort. We've also included the more bread and butter appies, coles, terps. Um, and, and equivalent procedures across other surgical specialties. Um, so, you know, I think it's not uh, it's not everything. You can't have everything because you're just going to be overwhelmed with 
cases. As it is, statistically, these are very hard models to run because there's a lot of complexity. We have a lot of covariates to try and provide some reasonable risk adjustment. Um, and, and we're talking one and a half million patients, give or take, uh, in these cohorts, 1.2 to 1.5, depending on the specific research question and what we're having to exclude for, for um, you know, the purposes of a particular study. I mean, I think that kind of does put that argument to rest. You know, these are major complex cases, major oncological cases that have a significant risk of morbidity, mortality, uh, not just in the immediate post-operative period, but down the track as well. And that's why I think the later if you look at time points are very relevant, aren't they? That's very meaningful. Uh, are these patients having a mortality issue is obviously the, probably the most important endpoint, um, and to still detect a difference there is extraordinary, really. And, and Chris, why do you think that difference is there a year out from surgery? I mean, do you think it's the intensity of follow-up? Is there a difference between males and females in, in, in follow-up technique? So this is a great question. This is, um, you're asking me to step beyond the data I currently have and, and postulate a bit, and I'm like, super happy to do it but i just want to make really clear to everyone that this is a bit of a um this is an informed opinion rather than a uh evidence-based statement so um i want to lay a little bit of context for how i'm going to approach this so you guys may know john berkmeyer's work when he videotaped surgeons in michigan doing bariatric surgery and there's a really fairly famous New England Journal paper where the the surgeon's skill as rated by their peers looking at anonymized videos was strongly associated with 30-day complications. Most people don't know that there's a follow-up study to that paper that was published in JAMA Surgery that looked at one-year outcomes. And surgeon skill on this Likert scale was no longer predictive of outcomes. Mm. So I think that's important to contextualize how I think about these data. I don't think this is, for the most part, what's happening inside the OR. I don't think this is a technical thing about what's happening in the OR because, you know, most, you know, most patients who die related to surgery don't actually die on the table, right? They die because of some complication that happens in the post-operative period that isn't recognized early enough. And, and that's where we get into this notion of failure to rescue. Um, and so the idea that if you identify small deviations from a normal post-operative course and you can act on them, you can uh, avert larger complications and, and mortality events later on down the road. So I think the concept of failure to rescue definitely comes into play here. Not to give away all my future research ideas, but I also think there are... Uh, th- differences in what happens before surgery as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know from you know, numerous studies across all of medicine that uh, women take more time with their patients um, uh, in counseling, in clinical visits, that communication styles are different, um, and, and there's good systematic reviews that show that female physicians get more, not just biomedical information from their patients, but more psychosocial information from their patients. And so I think they understand a patient's context and priorities going into surgery, probably on average better than the male surgeon does. And so particularly for those of us who operate in you know, preference sensitive areas, when there's multiple alternative treatment approaches, you know that decision to go for surgery um, is is arguably really important. And you can you can think through this, and if you have the same number 
of patients who are, are destined to have a bad event, you can um, change your event rate by not operating on some of them, right? Yeah. So people who are not, not going to benefit from surgical intervention but at risk of harm, if you charge forward into the OR, those people are going to show up on your M&M list and, and reflect poorly on, on a surgeon's outcomes Whereas you can, you know, potentially avert that outcome and improve the patient's, uh, um, you know, quality of life potentially by avoiding the OR. And it's uh, it's not an easy thing necessarily to say, but as a surgeon to, to come to the conclusion that, you know, the best thing for you is for me to not treat you. Um, maybe that kind of thinking and decision making is more common in female surgeons. You know, there's that old adage of the, the surgical cowboy. Um who charges into places where they maybe ought not to be, um, and and so I think there's a there's a really um, probably nuanced and multifaceted uh, aspect to this. Um, the last thing we should acknowledge when we're trying to think about why is that um, the culture of surgery historically has been uh, difficult or um, off-putting for women. And so if you walk through this thought experiment with me, let's hypothetically say that all the, the distribution of ability to be a surgeon is the same amongst male and female medical students. We're equally likely to be a good surgeon uh, independent of your, your sex. But because of you know, historical and cultural reasons, it's a bit harder for women to get into surgery. So let's say we take the top 10% of male medical students into surgery and the top 5% of female medical students into surgery. And, and that would re represent a much smaller discrepancy than we actually observe in most surgical specialties, right? We're not talking 30% uh, women or 35% women. We're actually talking much smaller. So the, the barrier, the hurdle is actually probably much larger. You could just expect then, not based on any actual difference in the underlying distribution of skill, but the average woman in surgery would be better than the average man in surgery. The best man and yeah. the best woman would, would be equivalent. The fifth percentile man and the fifth percentile woman would be equivalent, but then there would be no more women in surgery and there'd be another whole set of men who are lesser skilled and they would drag down the average. And so I, I, that's a very hard thesis or hypothesis to test or prove, but sociologically i think it has to be true i agree that's wow, what we were yeah, speculating on this yes, morning that's um, right. in our multidisciplinary team meeting we were talking about this paper and i speculated just like that i said it's such a broad thing um uh, because so many surgeons are male that there are very good male surgeons and very bad and very in the middle um, and maybe we're only getting the cream of the crop with the female surgeons that, that I certainly work with. Um, but then is that disrespectful because, okay, let's say we flipped it around and we had a very broad pool of female surgeons. Is that the explanation for why, because we have a bigger breadth, that we might get more variability? I don't think it's necessarily so because one of the other interesting things is in the same issue of JAMA surgery, um, and we'll put these links in the show notes, there's another study, there's a, a study from Sweden specifically looking at outcomes following cholecystectomy and very similarly showing that female surgeons had better outcomes in terms of complications, including important things like bile duct injuries uh, and so on. And Chris, very like what you just said, I was intrigued by this um, invited editorial that went with uh, these papers from 
Martin Almquist, um, uh, who's um, a researcher at Skane University Hospital in Lund in Sweden. Uh, and he points out that evidence has suggested these three things, that female surgeons are more likely to use patient-centered decision-making, I think this is just what you're saying, more willing to collaborate and more carefully select patients for surgery. He's saying that there's already evidence out there that shows these three things are an issue, and he speculates that these differences alone might translate into different outcomes. So I, I think a lot of the, um, the publicity that tends to go on stuff like this focuses on, oh, is it hard cases or easy cases? So in other words, surgical skill or experience or something. But I think you've, you've pointed that out, and that's what's really important here is multiple things, and then the rest of us could probably learn from these observations that other expert researchers have pointed out that the rest of us could be doing. And more patient-centered decision-making, more willingness to collaborate, better rescue strategies, as you point out, and selecting patients for surgery. Um, so it's, it's not straightforward, but I think the data is the data. There's definitely a difference for whatever it's going to be, whether it's the smaller skill set, the smaller pool of top female surgeons, whether it's these other factors, or whether there is case complexity that hasn't been well uh, confounded, as you say, residual confounders that can't be well accounted for in the study. I mean, I think it's yeah. important because not only, I mean, it highlights that, yeah, as we've always suspected that it, while technical skills are very important in surgery and for achieving long-term good outcomes, the non-technical skills are also just as important. Absolutely. And I mean, one of my mentors would say it's the decision, not the incision. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it is uh, really important to think beyond uh, or to like open our, our uh, definition of what a, a surgical skill set requires, right? Um, and I really, you know, hope that these data are taken in that light by male surgeons. You know, when I published the first paper, I was a resident and I got an email from uh, a faculty at a different university uh, in a different specialty, but, uh, you know, a physician that teaches residents who said, uh, if you think women are better surgeons than men, you're probably not cut out for this and you should drop out. Uh, and it was copied to my residency program director at the time. So, you know, I mean, we see that. Defensiveness is easy here. Yeah. But I think uh, what I'm hoping for is a little bit of a growth mentality um, and a willingness for introspection and say, you know what, I've got something to learn and I can do better for my patients. Like this data doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. I'm not, you know, telling Declan Murphy or myself or, or any of my male colleagues that we're intentionally harming patients. Uh, but I'm saying, you know, we can do better and let's try and identify ways that we can do better so that all surgeons treat all of our patients as best as we can. And so, you know, the goal is to go from these kind of epidemiologic data to a better understanding of what's actually driving it and then make that something that's teachable, something that's learnable so that we can all improve. Yeah, and that's important because, you know, not every patient can be treated by a female surgeon. There's just not enough of them around. And that's what we want to talk about in the last few minutes, Chris, to pick your brains on it, because um, I was just reminding myself of what proportions of surgeons are female nowadays, which remains depressingly low. But I think in the UK, approximately 13% of all surgeons are female only, and it's very variable, only like 7% of orthopedic trauma surgeons. I think only about 10 or 11% of urology, this is at consultant level, um, here in Australia, uh, in USANS, our urological society, uh, I think about 13%, 13%. maybe at the time it's about 13% of surgeons Sweden are female. Sweden is impressive. In Sweden, yeah, about mm -hmm. one third of general surgeons are. 
Um, but of course, all this data is also showing a, a much higher proportion of female trainees are coming through, um, and hopefully they will all be translating into consultant ranks. Um, so I think this issue of um, gender, more gender balance in making sure these surgical specialties are attractive for top female trainees to want to come and be surgeons um, uh, is very important. So I'm interested, first of all, in your strategies for that. I'll say here, actually, in Australia and in the UK, of course, we have female presidents um, yeah, at the moment. And is, we had yeah. a great moment at our USANS conference this year when we had, yeah, Joe Creswell, the BAUS president down here, celebrating Helen O'Connell, the USANS president, uh, taking up her role here. So this happens. This is, this is really helping, I think, the visibility of training. Um, so a comments generally on the workforce, if you don't mind. The second thing I want to come on to is because like you, we do, myself and Renew, do a lot of big G oncology surgery, a lot of urologic cancer surgery. And one of the things I really like about um, robotic surgery is I think it is a great uh, democratizing tool because open pelvic uh, surgery certainly and laparoscopic pelvic surgery is physically arduous, as is some major orthopedic surgery, physically mm -hmm. arduous. Um, and uh, um, I think that's one of the great things about the robot is it takes away a lot of that. You're sitting in a console, you know, um, uh, very comfortable. It's not going to be something that if you physically find it difficult to do mm -hmm. something because you're small bodied and so on, um, that it can be a great democratizing tool. So maybe some of the technologies can um, help with that. And uh, although myself and Renew did a big open surgery case <laughs> together yesterday, I was like, look at these little hands are great for getting down to this uh, uh, tight pelvis. So yeah, we still do some yeah. open surgery. But um, yeah, so your thoughts on workforce and uh, technology? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that I don't uh, consider myself an expert here. Um, so I don't think I'm... You know, I have thoughts, but I, I don't consider them, you know, particularly, uh, you know, uh, I I'm struggling for the right word. I don't consider them by any word, means like a final word or a, a expert opinion. It's more just uh, one guy's thoughts on the, the subject. Um, I, I'm better in terms of, you know, the actual uh, data behind differences in outcomes. But when we think about uh, demographics, I think... The real question is, what are we trying to achieve? Uh, and overall, I think when you look across the whole healthcare system, there's pretty good data that the better our workforce resembles the patients we're trying to treat, the better care we will deliver. We'll be able to align with patients' priorities better. We'll be able to meet them where they are. And so this, you know, today we're talking heavily about sex and gender. This also reflects race, ethnicity ethnicity, you know, disability, other characteristics. But, um, you know, the best we can get our uh, urology surgical workforces to resemble our patient population, uh, the better care, I think, as a, as a field we will be delivering. So in Canada, um, we have a very small, like, residency force in terms of urology we have like 35 residents a year or something which means that there's wild swings from year to year in terms of gender representation uh in toronto we have five four to five residents a year we have at times had had as many as three or four of them uh female at a time um it comes and goes i would say there's dramatically more women in urology training programs now i think than there are at the faculty level and one of my sort of um, sort of armchair observations has been that uh, there's kind of a leaky pipeline phenomena and it starts quite early. And so I've seen a lot of great female trainees go into private practice 
kind of circumstances. We would call it community practice in in, uh, in Canada. But rather than sticking in the academic teaching centers, they're going out into private practice sort of situations. And I think even within academics, it's well documented that the progression of women through uh, the ranks and, and into positions of leadership is been relatively poor, even given the, uh, the proportions of involvement. So um, I think it's great that we're getting more women into urology and into surgery, but we need to make sure that they're not just into our field, but they're able to really have an important voice at the table and be in positions of leadership and positions of power. Um, because you run the risk of tokenism when you have people who are included in the group but not given any real power to act. And so, you know, that goes to, you know, hiring decisions. Um, it's great for a hiring panel to value diversity and want to have diverse candidates. But if you really want a diverse outcome, you actually need diversity on the evaluating panel, on the, the hiring panel, rather than the hirees. Um, and so I think that kind of a mindset shift needs to happen. And we need not just more women as you know, trainees, but we need more women in all the positions of power. You're highlighting, you know, we're in a good position right now with you, Sands, and, and Baus having uh, female leadership. Um, but, you know, one year is one year, and we've had probably a century of men in power, and people react adversely when I say things like this. But, you know, if we were to have 25 years uh, straight where we said there's going to be no men in leadership positions, and it's only women for the next 25 years. A, I think our organizations would be better off. Um, but B, like we'd barely, we wouldn't scratch the surface of undoing yeah. the historical imbalances, right? Men will jump at the fact that, you know, that will hold, you know, many potentially, uh, you know, deserving men out of positions of power as if that hasn't been the case for 100 years um, already with the, the genders reversed. And so I think it's great to get women into our fields, but we need to make sure that they have the opportunities to advance their careers in the way that they want once they're in. Um, in terms of the technology side of things, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's the way I approach it at least is I do like 85% robotic surgery, uh, but it's just a tool. Um, some of the best trainees I've worked with, both open and robotically, have been women. Um, and I don't, I've never been in a case with a female surgeon as an open case where they have been physically limited in a way that I thought, like, oh, I can just muscle through this and they're struggling. Um, you know, even, even when there's like mass involved, there's like a finesse and a nuance to it. You know, one of my, Friends is a female um, arthroplasty surgeon who does mostly hips, um, and she's I don't know five foot two and not very heavy, and like she can dislocate the hip just fine. Um, so I think the whole notion of you know physical limitations is probably less relevant than you know the cultural and societal barriers. Uh, I don't see a reason why. You know, women can't physically do any of the operating that, that we do. Well, let, let's Look, go and I, ask her, what height are you? Quite slight. Uh, <laughs> about five feet. Yeah, because I've made that comment before, Renu, about the physical side. Because mm -hmm. a, a trainee of mine said it very forcefully to me one day. I was 
I love, love doing surgery. She was very good, but I'm going to do stones because I don't like pelvic oncology, physical surgery. So, you know, and it was at the start of the, the robot era, obviously. But um, it's, it's horses for courses a bit as well. But, what, you know, what, what do you yeah. find as a very good open surgeon and robotic surgeon? I mean, I, I certainly think the robot has made it much easier, but I think that's true for men and women. I yes. mean, from, you know, from an ergonomics point of view, from, you know, the days of, you know, trying to see a prostate that is not destined to be seen but felt, uh, <laughs> going from that to doing this beautiful robotic surgery, you know, it's, it's changed our field, um, you know. But I think even with the robot, you do have to watch your physical sort of, um, you know, your posture. I've been told many times that my posture sitting on the robot is terrible. And that's something that I have to actively work on. So I think, I mean, I think the robot has changed our field in many ways, but I think it's true for both men and women. There you go. And as, um, as, he's, as Chris Nice said at the very end, it, yeah, maybe there's something. It's clearly not the big thing. It's not the big thing on the big topic we're talking about today. There's obviously lots of these other great reasons, much of them addressable right, by culture. I, and by but I think, I mean, everything that Chris said is very true. You know, I think it's not just enough that we get more <clears throat> female trainees and females becoming urologists, but I think it's important that we get them in positions of influence and leadership. And I think that's why people like Joe Creswell and Helen O'Connell and even people like Ria Leanne for Rax has, has set such a great example. It's that old saying, if you can't be what you can't see, you know, it's, it's important to have these women in those positions and the lessons that they can teach will trickle down the line, you know, to our trainees and our medical students for both men and women. So I think Chris has made some great points. And Chris, you, uh, uh, your co-authors include uh, some very well-known voices like um, Arga Van Sales. I don't know her personally, but I love listening and watching to her videos. Um, and I've loved seeing some of the really positive reactions to this piece of work as well. So congratulations to you and all your co-authors and everyone else who's chiming in on this. And to and Jammer Surgery, who seems yeah. to they seem yeah, to embrace this topic really. Um, lots of publications uh, in recent years, uh, many of which you've contributed to, Chris. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you guys' interest in this, and I'm gonna, as a teaser, tell you to watch the space because we've got another paper in the next six to eight weeks that I think you will find very interesting. There you go. We couldn't resist it. A bit of a teaser. Come back for We'll have to get him back Repeat again. Repeat on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, great work. Fantastic. We love this topic. We hope you as our audience enjoyed this as well. Um, Aoife, you're moving from urology to radiology, but yeah. you, you've listened very intently to this. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, oh, across I think... medicine? Because it's not, as, as Chris said in his opening comments, this actually, his interest in this comes out of non-surgical uh, issues on better outcomes for female physicians. Yeah, I think, um, like I said, it's, the paper is absolutely great. Um, it's something I've long suspected, <laughs> but I think um, especially as like a female that was in surgery before, um, a lot of the times I suppose what we're describing, or well, what female trainees are described as can sometimes be like a little bit hesitant or maybe underconfident, but maybe we should reframe that as looking at the bigger picture, considering all the different factors, like it's actually not hesitancy, it's actually making potentially a better, better decision, decision for the patient. the patient. So it's nice to maybe flip the coin on that and be like, actually, your female trainee might not be hesitant, it's more that they're, they're making a um, healthy uh, level of, of caution. Yeah. yeah, but I know radiology yeah. have issues as well with um, females in, in the workforce um, too, and there's a lot of push to get more um, radiology training. I'm not sure what percentage it is exactly, but... But yeah, like it's, it is a bit tough being a female in medicine, but hopefully it's getting better. And I agree with Renu, like you can only be what you can see. So I think keep pushing um, more females in the um, sort of faculty big positions and um, will inspire more 
young female or female medical students and trainees to be like, I can be that. So, yeah, it's good. And Chris was just about to say something. Sorry, Chris. Oh, I was just going to say, I bet you, if you're at all like me, I actually want my trainees to be a little bit hesitant. The, the thing that scares me most is that, like, super, super confident agree. trainee. You just, you worry that they don't even know what kind of trouble they're going to get themselves into. And they're, I find it, like, so confidence-inspiring when the resident or the fellow is, like, slightly cautious and, and you have to push them a little bit and be like, you know, you're good. Like, go for it. Go for it. It's actually... It's so much nicer. Like I'm junior faculty, so I haven't been doing this for a super long time. So it's nice to not have that fear that they're going to make some wild and crazy move that you're going to have to try and undo the effects of. And so I, I find it so, like, I'm so appreciative when the, the trainee is just a little bit cautious. There you go. Fantastic. Great. That That's a great chat. I did enjoy yeah. that. Uh, Chris yeah. Wallace from the University of Toronto, thanks so much for joining us. The links are in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Aoife, for joining yeah, us as well. Thank you. That's great. Um, great to have a bit of Kim Kardashian on GU cast again. Seems like ages. <laughs> She's so been missing over, for a while. Long overdue. Feminist hero as well. Yeah, exactly right. And um, yeah, stay tuned. Please do uh, subscribe, of course. Uh, do leave us a nice review and rate us. Um, uh, we're enjoying the increased content we're able to do now with Absolutely. our partnership program and details of our partners are on the website as well so thank you very much to everyone for supporting us and uh, Declan you're going to be doing some location shooting oh we should say that we yes. should, you so, need um, to mention that yeah, keep an we, eye out for we, do, we do love our new studio we do. Uh, here uh, in Melbourne but um, yeah now the conferences are back we're out and about uh, so uh, next week I'll be at the IRIS meeting, the European Robotic Surgery meeting. I'm not sure will there be all that dancing, Aoife, that they yeah, were doing well, at the Europe hopefully. meeting, but uh, IRIS is on in Florence <laughs> next week, so we'll do a report from there. And, and be EANM is on, and yeah, uh, will be we'll be doing some cross-correspondence with them, so there's lots of great stuff to look forward to. Exactly. Stay tuned. Talk to you soon. <laughs>